0: Dave Nelson is going to give his testimony related to our series on toxic masculinity, gender, Jesus, all things like that. Okay, I might just have to preach the whole sermon today if you don't mind. (laughs) Okay, so last week Ken started a new sermon series on toxic masculinity and gender roles. And I believe that I have been on a quest for healthy masculinity my whole life. It starts with my father's story, which my father's story is almost identical to the story that Ken shared last week about the baby boomer generation having emotionally isolated fathers, and the evangelical church that came in and encouraged some emotion as long as it was in the spiritual categories. (coughs) That was like my father. That's how I grew up. Um, I see my little spiel today as like an add-on or like a little next generation or an appendix, if you will. Um, Early on, I found myself allergic to toxic masculinity. Toxic toxic masculinity seemed to, uh, it sort of grew in competition circles. So for sports, I was drawn to (laughs) cross-country. I stayed away from groups of guys, but learned how to have um, close friends here and there, really close friends. Um, And when I turned 18, I finally stepped into male power as a manager of Putt-Putt Golf and Games. (laughs) (laughs) It was wonderful. I love playing video games till five in the morning with friends. Um, But the thing I loved most from working there was working with the birthday parties and the kids, and entertaining them and having a blast with them on the golf course. And so, my first gender role breakdown in my life was when my uh, then new girlfriend, Jen, she convinced me to try babysitting, since I loved kids so much. And we were both in college, we were becoming teachers, and eventually babysitting turned into a full-time nanny gig and lasted for four years. Through the four years, with my practice kid,
1: <laughs>
0: we, we would get regular assumptions that I was his father, usually from clerks at grocery stores. And I would at first correct them, And then I let it go for a while, and then he got big enough where he would stand up and say, no, he's not my father, he's my babysitter. (laughs) So that was fun. But through this relationship, I learned that I could be nurturing, and I realized that I'd always dreamt of being a dad. I ended up... (sighs) I knew I was going to hit this part. I ended up getting married to the sweetest, most thoughtful person I've ever known. If you know Jen, you know I'm telling the truth. Yeah. She, she's watching. I ended up teaching... Let's see. Jen and I were the same age, but Jen graduated before me. And so I ended up... And we ended up uh, with great teaching job. She ended up with a great teaching job. I ended up teaching at a small private school. And so when Jen and I got pregnant... We knew that one of us, we decided that one of us was going to stay home with our children, and that was, ended up being me. So Jen was more rooted in her career and was driven, and let's face it, she made more money than me. (laughs) That's a whole other lesson that I had to learn. It was a tough switch in life, the repetition, the monotony of being a stay-at-home dad. And the winter cabin fever nearly broke me a few times. Through it, I have discovered a love for film and video editing because I would film every precious moment to share with Jen so she wouldn't miss anything. At first, I loved the response I got from people, usually women, when I told them that I was a professional father and not a stay-at-home dad because saying I was a stay-at-home dad made me feel lazy, which I am. But, say, but saying professional father, <laughs> saying professional father felt so much more manly. I've learned to try to get to let go of this validation or attention, but I still get pulled into the desire to prove my manliness, especially when I talk with my working guy friends. I always gravitate conversations toward the projects that I've done, the yard work, the moving earth and stone, the building of epic tree houses, the sandboxes, the power tools, the sweat, my muscle. But I would not share of the sweet, gentle, adventurous great times or the nurturing, loving, encouraging moments with my girls which are so, so many, and overwhelming, as you can see. So nowadays, I search for all the things that try to sneak in and tempt me to prove my false manliness. I find myself really rarely asking peoples about their lives and their personal emotion lives. Jen is often confounded that after talking for an hour with a friend, I still have no clue what's happening in their life. Yet, if you were to ask me what was the most important thing to focus on in life, I would say it was friends and family and neighbors and community. My male pattern maleness is getting into the way of connecting with real people. My guy talk can stop me from living a life that agrees with my heart and my beliefs. Building deep and true community can get sidetracked by the temptation to be manly. Another thing that I've been chewing on is my inner girl-power self. I find it easy to be a feminist when I have daughters. (laughs) And I could only hope that I would be the same if I had sons. Yet, I wonder. I find myself pushing women roles, role models, on my girls a strong kick-butt woman like the U.S. women's soccer team or every single woman on America's Ninja Warrior. (laughs) Maybe these women, though, would be good role models for anyone, for little boys as well as little girls. Maybe it's time for men, even fully grown-ass men, to be allowed, to allow themselves the privilege of having women as their role models. to be truly inspired and moved by women, and not shy to say it. So, I'm going to right here and right now. I would love to be like Jessie Graff when I grow up. Oh, yeah. I've been wanting to say that out loud for a while now. She kicks butt on American Ninja Warrior and is a professional stuntwoman, and she seems so sweet and so happy. So, now this next part is, is, much, is mostly for me. I'm going to list role models. The women who have inspired me to be strong, kind, wise, thoughtful. And they include G. Willow Wilson, a comic artist, or writer. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. My neighbor Mimi, Julia Taymor, the director my friend Adrian, Michelle Warnke from Ninja Warrior, and teachers like Mrs. Groves, Mrs. Ayers, Mrs. Porter, Mrs. Harmon, and my mom. And we're surrounded right here with amazing women. Caroline, Emily, Robin, Cassie, Diane, Nancy, I I, I could just keep going forever. And my super brave daughter, Avery. My wife, Jen, who I strive every day to be more like. You are all my role models. Thank you.
1: Man, I've always loved Dave Nelson. I can see why. And honestly, if I had known, Dave, that you were going to be talking about how toxic forms of masculinity impacted you, I wouldn't have had nearly as much time, trouble with this sermon as I've had. And I'm actually going to toss parts of it out, so just kind of bear with me as I listen to you. Because I thought, you know, I was going to open with the story of my dad's dad, which is the same story that Ken had with his dad. And... We we know these stories, right? These are our stories, the stories of the men in our families, the stories of our own selves. Um, You know, when we started thinking about toxic masculinity as a sermon series, we were afraid it might get misheard, because I just want to clarify, it doesn't mean men are toxic. It means that the stories that we tell ourselves about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman have toxic effects on us. And I remember a conversation I had with my, my dad, and he was talking about his dad. His dad was a war vet and, you know, tough guy, probably couldn't read. And I remember my dad, like the thing that was the most striking to me about the conversation was that my dad said that the, that was like one of the saddest parts of his life was that he felt like his dad couldn't understand him because he could never live up to be the tough guy. And he felt like he could never understand his dad. And so he felt like there was this profound disconnection between them. And it made me just think about the shame that causes that profound disconnection. The shame that if we don't live up to these, these different stories about who we are um, can cause us to then like use our own wounds, our own shaming wounds to shame others. So in her, in her research, Dr. Brené Brown, some of you, we've, we've done some sermon series on her. She describes shame as the fear of not belonging or having a fear of disconnection because of something about yourself. Like, I'm afraid that I won't belong or I'm afraid that I won't be respected if you know X, Y, or Z about me. And her data shows that the gender expectations on American men include these four messages that make men feel on some level um, like they won't belong if they can't uphold them. And we see all of these reflected in what some of Dave's story was. One is having emotional control, right? Don't cry. Don't show your feelings. The second one is exerting control over women. The third is pursuing status at all cost. And the fourth is expecting work to be primary for a male, that men should be the breadwinners or be the primary breadwinners in heterosexual relationships, which Dave being a stay-at-home dad, I could understand feeling all of these mixed messages and feelings that even if you are a feminist, you still labor under these cultural expectations of who you are. You know, studies have overwhelmingly shown that heterosexual marriages are more likely to end in divorce as soon as the female starts to out-earn the male, right? Because earning less money than their wives are earning less money than they think they should makes men in our culture feel ashamed. And so the message that we're sending American men is stop feeling, start earning, and give up on any meaningful connection in your life. Because if you're not successful by some traditional standard, if women don't like you, if you're not in control, you're not feeling those muscles from building your playhouse, then you're a loser. And certainly not all men fit into those categories. And even men who are aware of these dynamics, who consider themselves feminists, have these pressures that they operate because they're just everywhere in our culture. Now something I learned this last week is actually that little boys are actually more emotional than their female peers before gender socialization. Looking over, hey, Anderson, what's up? And we've had a slew of babies born in, our, in this church community here in the last, I think, year and a half. I think it started with Rishi, who's Satish and Clarissa's son. And then we just, well, there's and Kristen. They had twin boys and Anderson. We've just had a whole bunch of baby boys born. And most of them, if not all, will probably grow up to identify as male when they're older. And baby boys are just naturally as emotional as baby girls, but very quickly, our culture tells them to stop crying, right? Don't be a sissy. Get up, be strong, you can keep going. And by the time they're six years old, boys can identify fewer emotions than girls, right? We're really good at helping them identify anger, but we're not good at helping them identify other emotions. And one of the best ways that we can help our little boys is to give them language to identify the whole range of emotions and then safe space at home and safe space at places like faith communities to experience those emotions without shame. So I know you guys, you men out there, self-identified men, if you show traces or what are perceived to be feminine traits, you get skewered by your peers growing up. And if you're gay, Transgender, non-binary, intersex, the bullying is all the worse. So I was looking at the National Institute of Health, right? This is our American National Institute of Health, says that the strain due to rigid adherence to traditional masculine ideals is detrimental to men's psychological well-being. And it says that the distress is rooted in three types of gender role strain. First, it's strain due to the beliefs that you've failed to live up to some internalized notion of masculinity. The second is strain due to the tendency to persist in dysfunctional behavior because of these traditional masculine ideals. So let me give you a really clear example. Like, I'm not going to the doctor, right? And I was just thinking, like, yesterday, Rachel and I were out having a conversation with our neighbors, uh, Deanna, and I I won't name him because I'm going to (laughs) say a little bit about him. He just had knee surgery. And she's like, I kept trying to tell him before he went, like, ask the doctor how many weeks I might need to take off to help you. I'll be fine. I'm not going to ask the doctor. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And she's like, and then here we are. And he like can't even get up by himself for three or four weeks. And that's just persisting in dysfunctional behavior, trying to be tough. And the third way that it hurts men is it's strained due to the trauma that's experienced during early gender role socialization. So bullying and shaming that's done on our kids. So one of the best books that I have read in a while that unpacks some of this pain that men experience under the gender norms or the stories we tell about what it means to be a man is this one. It's called The Man They Wanted Me to Be. And I don't usually say you guys should definitely read this book, but you should definitely read this book, especially if you're male-identified. Um, the only little caveat I did want to say is he uses the word homosexuals in the book, which for those of you who are gay know that like, it's a trigger word. It's a word that is usually used by people um, who don't aren't very friendly to gay people. We usually use words like gay, queer, LGBTQ. Um, So I actually wrote him. He's on staff at a college in Georgia, and I just said, you may not know this, but in the spirit that it's intended, like we we just don't use the word homosexual. And um, he wrote right back and was like, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. So I just wanted to say that for, for some of our queer men who might read this. I think it's actually pretty queer friendly. But he grew up in a small town in Indiana which I grew up in Indiana, and he uses his own story, his memoir, to just talk about how the strict gender norms left him alcohol addicted, left him suicidal, and left him with a string of failed relationships. And when we don't let little boys feel things like sadness and confusion, and we don't let them fail, we don't let them feel scared, we don't give them the opportunity to learn how to be resilient when they actually are facing these feelings. And we've learned that men are by far less resilient than women in the face of hardship. So, like when men lose a job, when men lose a spouse, they're at much higher risk of suicide and of addiction. So I wanna read a little passage um, from this book by Jared Sexton Yates. And in this, he is, here's where he's at. He's just gotten his second DUI. He spent a night in jail and he goes home and he's got a loaded gun that he's ready to use on himself. And he realizes, like, I I am at the low I don't know what to do. Maybe I will finally go to the therapist everybody's been telling me I should go to. So he goes, and the therapist is trying to get him to talk about his feelings, about his life. He was just like, I, I was too tough. Like I wasn't gonna talk about that stuff. There was no way. So he said he sat through the whole first therapy session and just kind of stonewalled her. And then he went home and he said that he grabbed a bottle and started drinking again because he he felt like a fraud, because he felt weak and scared, like, oh, I guess I'm too scared to talk about my feelings. So he said, I stumbled into the other room to a bookcase, and fighting my swaying vision, I found a book that had been plaguing me for months. He said, when my partner had left the previous summer, we'd stayed in touch, there was this outside chance of us reconciling, but we couldn't get past our arguments about who was to blame, even though I knew deep in my marrow that I was the guilty party. But I couldn't admit it, and I couldn't let the matter drop, and I was too stubborn and too proud. And the talks went nowhere fast, until one night she called me and she gave me the ultimatum, and she said, you read this book that I left behind or else we're never talking again. The book was this hippy-dippy, new-age text about feelings and communication, the kind of thing my ex would read with her discussion groups as they practiced extreme empathy and healthier relationships. And I took one look at the cover, which was a giant, bright sunflower holding the planet Earth in its petals. (laughs) And I tossed it across the room. (laughs) It was too girly, it was too expressly gendered. And jokingly, I told a friend that I could feel my testosterone count lowering whenever I saw it lying there on the floor. But for all of my joking, that book terrified me. When I held it, my hands would shake, and I could hardly read more than a few pages without having to put it down and just walk away. He said, after my therapy appointment, I felt like a coward. So to counteract that, I grabbed that book and I cracked it open. Even though I was alone, I still made a show of rolling my eyes every time I came across something about getting in touch with my feelings or establishing trust. Just like my relatives, I had to pretend to be tough, even in secret, because in actuality, the concepts were so heavy and so frightening that they challenged my identity. And then I came across a scenario in the book that hit home. In it, the author was talking to a married couple about their strained relationship, about a relationship that was suffering because the wife felt the husband just closed off emotionally. She called him a wall, and she talked about how it hurt to have a partner to maintain such a distance from her. He said, "'Reading that felt worse than any punch in the face I had ever taken.'" Because the example laid bare a contradiction that had been plaguing me for years. I was trying to be strong so I could survive, so I could be the guardian for people I love, so I could prevent the type of horrors that my mom and I survived. But in doing so, I'd inflicted the pain of isolation. I'd pushed everyone away, and i had come to hate myself. And in a moment of clarity, I'd come face-to-face with the fact that masculinity was predicated on a lie. I mean, this, this book, guys. I, I have to tell you... Um, I'm just gonna be going off script a lot because I'm like, I I guess I'll just, it's hard to be honest. As a queer female pastor, it is hard to talk about toxic masculinity because you don't want to be seen as like, there's like a stereotype that queer people hate men. Or um, you think about all the ways that toxic masculinity has been used against queer women too. And oh, there's just like so much that is packed into that. And there's so many ways that toxic masculinity hurts women. That we talk about more, probably, right? The number of rapes, the number of domestic abuse, the number of murders of intimate partners that is far more um, used against women, the results of the way we talk about masculinity. But God, just like, I felt like just started breaking my heart for men in the last couple of years. Here, I'm gonna be the emotional woman, right? I'm walking around, I'm listening to this book on Audible, and I'm like, oh my God, you men, you suffer. Probably especially queer men. But just with these narratives that there's no way you could ever uphold and that are keeping you from connecting with others what is it like men have an average of one friend or less than one friend outside of their intimate partner that just makes you miserable that gives you no resilience nobody to have any empathy with like one of the things that i thought was the most practical tip for you for you guys is that if you're hanging out with other guys and somebody says something vulnerable it can be easy to just be like, oh, okay, you feel scared because you don't have a job. Okay, let's play video games or something. He said, just turn and be like, you know what, I felt scared too. And it might get harder, but you know what, I, I'm here to listen. I'm here with you. So it's just like acknowledging the pain, saying it's okay, saying I felt that way too, and I'm here. That's just such a practical tool to help, to help with the connections So as I started to think about all of these things, and about how men are are given fewer skills for intimacy, and how emotional isolation is as deadly as a smoking habit, I started to think, okay, what's this got to do with God and spirituality? Like, what can we do about this in a church or a spiritual sense? And so I've been thinking about how this talk around toxic forms of masculinity focuses on the harm that the narratives cause. And I think it's right for us to talk about those harms for women as well as for men. But it also feels like we're a little bit at a loss for how to go about changing these stories that we tell ourselves about gender. And I thought, yeah, like it or not, American Christian culture informs and reinforces these harmful narratives about what it means to be a man or to be a woman. And it imbibes what it means to be male or female with sacredness, right? With no thought for the spectrum in between those gender poles. And we've fallen into this trap of making God into our own image instead of allowing God as God is to shape us. And much of American Christianity has interpreted God as a patriarchal, power-seeking, omnipotent male. You know, there was one influential mega church pastor a few years back. This is a quote from him. He said, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That's a guy I can worship. I can't worship a guy I can beat up. First, he's wrong about the sword. Actually, the sword is in Jesus's mouth, not his hand, which is a whole different metaphor. And I think I can safely assume that if you're attending a church with a queer woman as one of the senior pastors, that's probably not the vision of Jesus that you subscribe to, but I can see the appeal. And I can definitely see it reflected in the parts of Americana that elected our current leader, right? It emphasizes that Jesus is a winner, not a loser. He's a tough guy. He's not a wimp. He's in charge. He can beat us up if he wants to. He can put us in our place. He's a warrior. And that Jesus definitely dominates women and doesn't let them lead, right? I found out just this week, only 10% of senior pastors in Protestantism are women. And of course, zero in Catholicism. But 10% and of a church our size or larger, and we're not like a huge church, it's three percent. So that particular pastor was eventually asked to step down from church leadership because of, you can probably guess, systematic abuses of power for abusing his staff, abusing his congregants. But that guy's still around, and he started a new church, and his brand of Jesus is alive and well, and it's this brand that touts supremacy and domination and hierarchy and all of the things that our culture tells us that a man should espouse. Right? But we are called to lay down our power seeking to follow Jesus. Right? And the theological term for the rejection of this dominating supremacy is called kenosis. Kenosis. It just means self-emptying. And this doesn't mean that people can't lead or be leaders. It's describing how we lead and how we are in the world. Are we acting of a desire to dominate and to get our way with our partners, with our kids, with the people we manage at work, or do we act out of love and care for all involved? So we learn about kenosis, we learn about this self-emptying love in the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians. So I'm going to read quite a bit of this. This is verses 1 to 11. Paul is writing, he says, therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Jesus if any comfort from his love, if any sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So first I want to point out, this is the Apostle Paul writing and describing how he feels in the presence of Jesus in prayer, right? He feels encouragement. He feels comfort. He feels tenderness and compassion. And then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded Right, You go, you have that same love. Be one in spirit and of one mind. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Right? He didn't use his privilege or his status to dominate humans. But rather, he made himself nothing. That's that word kenosis. He emptied himself. He put down his domination. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, he came in appearance as a man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross, right? Lavishly loving others until we killed him. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Right, this is a picture of Jesus releasing power instead of grasping it, of serving others instead of dominating them. But I think we could be tempted to say, well, you know, isn't this still a picture of every knee bowing to Jesus, right? So it's a, it's a picture of supremacy and of domination. But I think it's best understood as a picture of humanity acknowledging that the powerful leaders of history are not the lords or the heroes of history that we think them to be but rather Jesus and his way of nonviolent self-giving love is going to earn the trust of all of humanity right that we will ultimately migrate toward that way of thinking understanding as Jesus did that power and domination are not the ways to help humans and creation thrive but rather vulnerability and connection and self-giving love those will lead to our joy So a few years back, I was talking with a friend of mine, this is the Reverend Winnie Varghese. She's an Episcopal priest, and she was getting ready to lead a communion service at the Y Christian Conference, which was led by a number of women, especially women of color and queer women. And it was in a large cathedral in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she had been asked to kind of preside over the entire service. And this service had all of the pomp and circumstance that you might associate with what we call high church, right? We are not high church here. We're talking about like the robes and the colorful stoles, right? And like processing down the aisle with a scepter and there's flags and there's banners waving in this giant, enormous cathedral space and the organ is going. It's like one of those really high services. And Winnie grew up in India, my my priest friend, And something that she told me as she was planning that service really struck with me. She said, you know what? Most of the time, I find all of this stuff completely embarrassing. It is utterly embarrassing to watch white Western Christianity process around with scepters and robes that reinforce a narrative of dominance and where they're acting like royalty, right? She said that kind of Christianity helped oppress India for almost 200 years, you know, it just says, like, look at me, look how special I am, and God blesses me and the way I am in the world, and what I'm doing to you is sacred. But then she went on to tell me, she said, you know what, though? She said, when it's done subversively, this is one of the most powerful and moving rituals that you can perform. Right? When it's done subversively, this is one of the most powerful and moving rituals to perform. Well, what did she mean by that? She said, well, you know what? Watching people with social and political and cultural power parade around their dominance, right? Parade around a church. So said, that is embarrassing. But watching people who do not have any social, political, or cultural power perform these ceremonies is inspirational. Because what it's saying is, you know what? The powerful people won't usually let me do this. They won't hire me. They won't ordain me, right? They'll out you and fire you. They will treat you like scum. But you know what? I'm worthy of the honor and the dignity and the respect that the world won't give me, right? It's when people who have been oppressed get together and they say, you know what, we're gonna honor each other even when nobody else will do it, right? This is the difference between holding a straight pride parade, which is utterly embarrassing, and a gay pride parade which is inspirational, where people are saying, no, I don't care, you're not going to make me feel shame, I'm going to be who I am, loud and proud with all my rainbows. Right? Because it's one thing for a powerful person to declare, look, I'm worthy, look at me, celebrate me. We have one in, in power right now. And it's another thing to have somebody who's been treated poorly their entire lives say, no, look, I'm worthy. Look at me, celebrate me. Right? The same words in different mouths have an entirely different meaning. And for me this is how we read Philippians 2. When the earliest followers of Jesus, they were an oppressed minority in the Roman Empire, when they talk about Jesus being exalted to the highest place and being honored by everyone, it isn't coming from a time when Christians were able to subdue and dominate others. We've certainly done that. It's coming from a time when Christians were persecuted, jailed and killed for their faith. And what they're saying to the world is there's a different way of being in this world. And our way of being in this world, our witness of this world is one of self-emptying love. It's one of humility and mercy and love and justice-seeking. And we refuse to become like the people who have oppressed us. We are not going to lose our common decency, even unto death. And in the end, this witness of how to be human is going to overcome all other narratives. you see how that's like a prophetic proclamation of faith and not a statement of dominance? because following Jesus isn't about dominance and posturing it's about vulnerability it's about self-giving love it's not about having a sword having to beat people up it's about loving others and seeking the good of everyone you know, here's where i think i'm just going to like throw out some of the sermon i was going to go into a little bit more about the gender of god gender of jesus but you know i looked back and i was like you know i've done two sermons in the last year on patriarchy and on the gender of God. And Ken did a lovely sermon last week, I think, on how Jesus bucked, you know, some of the the traits that were um, patriarchal within his own context. And I've just started, I've just been thinking a little bit this morning. I mean, I was late this morning. I don't think I've been late to church, maybe in my entire life since I've been a pastor. I worked all day Friday. I worked Saturday on it. It just was like, gnawing at me because I'm like, what do we do about this? We know that God is above and beyond gender. We've done that work as a congregation. We know that God has both male and female qualities, whatever that means. We know that Jesus was pickled in part of his own Jewish tradition that that loved and embodied the divine feminine, that he associated with Sophia, with wisdom We know that the presence of God that we see multiple times in his life when he was praying that came down on him, this Shekinah presence in Hebrew is a feminine presence. It's the presence that overshadowed his mother that we're told impregnated her. That's a little gay, (laughs) right? The Shekinah presence was present at the Mount of Transfiguration. It It was everywhere and he wasn't ashamed of it. He let himself be shaped by that stream of Judaism that we have then tamped down because it doesn't fit our picture of what a man should be or what a woman should be and how all of our theology hinges on that. It's like, well, let's just not even go there. And I found preaching this topic incredibly challenging because of the makeup of our church. Yeah, we've got some straight guys who are like guys' guys in here who can fit pretty well with a lot of traditional guy culture. We have a lot of queer men who have probably been made to feel terrible about anything that's perceived as more feminine. I almost don't even want to name some, because queer women get this too, and it's like, I'll start crying. It's that tender. The things that we're told about gender, the things that women have suffered under because of toxic forms of masculinity, are, I mean, these are like core harms that are done to us. And I've been reading this, this Jewish rabbi just to satisfy some of my own questions about who we are and she talks about the soul. Her name's Rabbi Naomi Levy and she's got a congregation in LA. And she says, you know, in the Jewish tradition, it is our life's work to discover what our soul is telling us. The soul, I don't know what you wanna call it, your essence, that part of you that is made in the image of God. She said in the Jewish tradition, we picture like all of these souls, all of us are held together in this divine presence of love and this divine presence gives each soul different potential, like different things to reflect the image of God. And so each human carries a bit of the divine and it's our job to discover what this bit is that we reflect of God and to show it to the world. And in doing that, in finding that actual part of us where we find our joy, can be vulnerable and can connect with others, that, that's the spiritual work of your life. And it's how we peel back these onion layers of these stories that tell us, well, we actually can't be like that. Like, but at my core, that's what I am. Right? I don't know if some of you saw um, Prince William's son. I can't remember his son's name, but um, they made fun of him for taking ballet. And then lovingly, the, the dance world came back and said, boys dance too. You know, like, those kind of narratives that tell him you shouldn't be about, like, stop. What is it that's at the vulnerable core of who you are? Because right now, Christianity isn't telling the truth about what it means to be a human, and our culture isn't telling the truth. Right? Every single one of us in here has stories about how gender norms have harmed us to varying degrees. Every single one of us. And we're not telling the truth that of course every one of us has these different attributes that you might define as masculine or feminine because we reflect a God who has all of these attributes. And when we don't let ourselves lean into these attributes and expose them without shame, we are denying ourselves the wholeness of God. Right, so it's untangling these stories and peeling back these layers that's our life journey. And so I was thinking for the, the meditation, we might do something that could be a little, bit, um, a little bit vulnerable. So we often end with two or three minutes of silence or guided meditation, but for this one, we might take just a little bit longer. And what I want you to do is imagine yourself. Yeah, let me get, let you get comfortable. I don't mean to just dive right in. In other words, how do we do this? Imagine yourself sitting before Jesus or God, however you understand God. And imagine yourself like in the middle of an onion with all of these layers that have to be peeled away. And then I want us to just spend a few minutes imagining Jesus peeling those layers to get down to you. Let's spend a minute doing that. And when you get down to the place where you're just looking at Jesus or looking at God as you understand God, I want you to just present before this being some specific instances where you have felt shame or harm because of gender expectations or norms. Imagine God weeping over those. Now I want you to imagine some specific things where you feel like you haven't been able to fully express who you are because of gender expectations. Like example, women are often not allowed to express anger. Men are often not allowed to cry. But maybe it's, maybe it's something else, but just something that has made you feel less than free. Let's imagine this God who is love just saying over us, you're beautiful, I created you just as you are. Just as I am, a whole spectrum in me contains all the spectrum of all that is, so you carry my spirit in you that contains a spectrum. And I bless all of these parts of you and I accept all of these parts of you So Jesus, we ask that you would help us to find healing in some of these places that have caused us shame, hurt, harm, embarrassment. We ask that you would help give us tools to know how to be vulnerable with each other. And to say, I think this is where I've I've been told this story that's kept me from being what I want to be. And I ask that you would give us tools to be able to tell the story, to tell the truth of who we are, in the world around us. I ask that you would bring healing to those really sore, deep parts of our hearts, of our soul, and that you would teach us to access what it is that our souls are telling us about who we are. I ask that you bless this work in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, I'd like